So we are continuing our series of messages from the gospel according to Matthew, and this morning we find ourselves still in chapter 14 of that gospel. You can find that on page 974 of your pew Bibles, um, and I would urge you to use that or your own to follow along as we work through the text this morning. Uh, we'll be using verses 13 to 21 as our text for this morning, and if you are able, would you please stand with me out of reverence and respect for the reading of God's infallible, inerrant, and inspired word. Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and, and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men besides women and children. This is the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts this morning. Please be seated. So last week, in the text we looked at, we found Matthew giving us the account of how John the Baptist was martyred for his faithfulness in declaring God's word to a couple of, pardon the word, a couple of fools, Biblically, in, in that sense, people who had no fear of God before their eyes, but fools who were in positions of power. We also, though, saw how John the Baptist continued his mission of pointing to Jesus even in his death. How it typified, in many ways, the death that would come to Christ himself. Matthew also told us, though, about the faithfulness of John's disciples in burying his body and then coming to inform Jesus of what had happened. And so as we come to this text today, we see how Jesus is going to react to that news, at least in an outward way. As we look at this text, I want to do so under three headings. The first will be privacy in verse 13. The second will be privation in verses 14 to 17. And finally, provision in verses 18 to 21. Let's first look at, at privacy. As we already noted, that previous passage ended in verse 12 by Jesus getting the news of what had happened to John the Baptist. And Matthew tells us now that at least outwardly, Jesus' reaction to this was that he withdrew. The word means that he retired from. It means that he went away from, the word used is there, um, the place he was in. Now, the fact that Matthew tells us that he withdrew from there by boat tells us that he's not still in Nazareth when he gets this news. 
Um, you wouldn't have taken a boat from Nazareth. Uh, it was a good way to the shore from there. He's obviously back in the area of Capernaum again, by the side of the Sea of Galilee. The question is, where did Jesus withdraw to and why does he withdraw? Well, again, Matthew doesn't really tell us straight out. He simply tells us that he went to, as the ESV that I read says, a desolate place. Now, the word they translate as desolate is one that talks about a place that's uninhabited, that is lonely. It's even used to describe sometimes a place that is a desert or a wilderness. It's commonly suggested that the place Jesus went to at this point was, again, along, obviously by boat, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably somewhere just below the city of Bethsaida. Now, in doing this, it is true that he would have left the area governed by Herod Antipas, the one who had just killed John the Baptist and thought that Jesus was John the Baptist returned in the flesh, raised from the dead. And in doing so, he would have gone into the area ruled by Antipas's brother, Philip. So there's a sense in which he is, by doing this, taking himself away from an immediate threat of danger from Herod Antipas, if that indeed exists. Now the question is, is he leaving the area of Galilee, Capernaum, out of fear of Antipas? Well, there are many who suggest that that's exactly what he's doing, that he is avoiding the possibility that Antipas might decide that this is John come back, let me finish him for good, um, and that he is departing in order to avoid that. Although there's some ways in which that doesn't make sense, given that Jesus is essentially going to pretty much immediately return back to Capernaum and continue to do ministry there. If you listen to the words Matthew uses, even though he doesn't actually tell us, if you listen to the words he uses, notice he tells us that Jesus is withdrawing to an uninhabited, lonely place. And that he does so, how? By himself. Now, we understand by himself also includes his disciples, the twelve, because we find them later in the rest of the text, right? And besides, if he goes by boat, Jesus isn't able to sail that boat by himself. He needs a crew, and he's got great fishermen who know exactly how to do that. But still, Matthew tells us he goes to a lonely, quiet, desolate place by himself. It seems to suggest that Jesus was seeking a place and a period of rest, of peace, you might say, possibly even a, a time of reflection. Now, other Gospels will tell you that the disciples have just completed their, their, uh, ministry, their mission ministry, going out two by two and, and being able to do miracles and have come back in to tell Jesus about everything they've been able to do and that one of the reasons he goes apart is to be able to talk with them in private about all of that. But still looking for that quiet, restful peace away from the crowds, right? But I also want you to keep in mind how very hard this news about John the Baptist likely hit Jesus. Keep in mind that Jesus and John the Baptist are blood relatives. And keep in mind that they were united in 
their ministry and in their mission. They, in essence, for a period of time, labored almost right alongside one another doing the very same ministry. It wasn't until John the Baptist was arrested, remember, in chapter 4, verse 12, that Jesus withdrew from that area and began his own ministry in Galilee. Also, keep in mind that very close personal exchange between Jesus and John the Baptist when Jesus comes to be baptized. John looks at him and says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. This is, this is wrong. I, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You're the one that should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, I understand. Just let it be so for now to fulfill all righteousness. Remember, they weren't only united physically in terms of their bloodlines and relationship, but they are united together spiritually. John the Baptist was literally the prophesied forerunner of the Messiah, the one who would come to prepare the way and to present him to the world, to the people of God. Think how Jesus reacted at the tomb of Lazarus when his good friend passed. Jesus wept. His heart certainly is impacted by the loss of this brother in ministry and mission. And so we see this need for privacy. Let's move to privation. Now, now you might be wondering, I wonder why in the world he picks a word like privation. We never hear that word um, anymore. It's not a commonly used word. Well, the word privation means to be in a state of being deprived. It can also mean to lack what you need for existence. And as we look at this text, I believe that we're going to see that privation is evident here in at least a few different senses as we look through verses 14 through 17. First of all, Matthew tells us that when Jesus sailed by boat toward this desolate place, yes, taken by his crew, the crowds that he was trying to escape as he went by himself to this remote area noticed what he had done and it seems also noticed the direction he was heading in as he got in the boat and sailed away and they immediately jumped up and headed by foot around the perimeter of the lake the shore of the lake to get to where he was going so they could find him once again and so it seems that it would have been a shorter trip on foot than by boat, although why do all that walking if you can sit in a boat and ride across, especially when you've got excellent sailors to do that for you? But it seems like it's a shorter trip for the people on foot because as soon as Jesus steps ashore, what does he see? He sees this great crowd that he was trying to get away from, either waiting for him or heading toward him even as he steps out of the boat. Now, what's Jesus' reaction to that? Think about the fact that he is suffering privation, right? He came here because he needed some time to be away. He wanted to spend some close, quiet time with his disciples by himself. But instead, he finds the crowd he was trying to get away from waiting for him when he arrives. How does he react? Does he sternly rebuke the crowds and tell them to go away? I need some me time now. Go away, I'll find you again later. No. 
Does he jump back in the boat and order the disciples to go find a more inaccessible place so they can't get to him? No. What does he do? His heart, Matthew says, is moved with compassion, mercy, pity, sympathy for that crowd. And so he immediately begins to heal their sick. Well, why is his heart moved toward that crowd that way? I thought he was trying to get away from them. Well, Matthew, again, doesn't really tell us. But knowing Jesus as we should know him by now, as Matthew has been displaying him and explaining him for us, the answer really is pretty clear. Why Jesus responds with compassion and begins to heal them instead of being upset. It is because the crowd and the people in that crowd are in a much more serious state of privation, if you will. You see, because of the sinfulness of their human nature and because of their own sinfulness flowing out of it, they are deprived of God's peace, God's shalom. The complete, full wellness, well-being physically and spiritually that God intended us to be created for. They're sick. They're lost. They need help. And that is, after all, why Jesus came. Right? And so he begins to heal their sick, Matthew tells us. And although Matthew chooses to omit this, um, this piece of it, Mark also tells us, by the way, all four Gospels tell this very same story, so it's a very important one for us to, to see and understand. Mark tells us that along with healing them, Jesus also began to teach them. Of course he would. His teaching and his works are not separated. The works demonstrate the truth of his teaching. He teaches and heals them in order to address their physical and spiritual needs, their privation. Jesus has a true shepherd's heart, and he demonstrates that here to his disciples in this situation. He doesn't become offended at the crowd. He has compassion for them. If you were to look back to Ezekiel chapter 34, in that passage, God through Ezekiel the prophet is speaking out against the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel that God says have been horrible shepherds, have been, instead of feeding and caring for the sheep, have been using the sheep to meet their own needs and abusing them. And in verse 16 of that chapter, God describes himself as the true shepherd of his people, and he says, I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. In fact, in verse 14, two verses before that, he said, I will cause them to lie down in rich green pastures. I will feed them. And so as the day winds down here for Jesus and his disciples in the crowd, the disciples come up to remind Jesus just how far away they are from towns and villages. It's a desolate place. Those places where food can be purchased to meet their needs, the needs of the crowd, and they urge Jesus to send the crowds away because they need to eat. They're suffering privation from not having food to eat. Now, to their surprise, Jesus tells them, oh, the crowds don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. What? 
What could Jesus possibly mean by that? Again, if you read all the other accounts of this, you'll find that one of the things the disciples respond with is to say, wait a minute, we don't have nearly enough money to be able to go out and buy like 200 denarii, 200 days wages to be able to go out and buy enough food to even begin to feed this number of people. It's impossible. See, they realize they don't have enough money to buy that much food. And they've already, maybe they've been hungry themselves, they've already checked around to see what food is available. And guess what? They've only found, again, Matthew doesn't tell us, but one of the other accounts tells us, they found one small boy that has five small loaves and two small fish. Sounds like they were getting ready to take the lunch from the boy. Um, anyway, this small boy has this. Now, and again, remember, the loaves aren't loaves of bread like we think about these big, tall, full loaves of bread. When they talk about a loaf of bread, they're talking about a cake of flatbread that's cooked on like a hot metal or stone surface. They're probably just pieces so big and maybe a little bit thick. Five of those and two, notice, small fish. In other words, they may not have said it to him, but at least in their hearts and in their minds, these men, when they hear Jesus say, you give them something to eat, are saying, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're asking us to do the impossible. Is he? Again, remember, Matthew doesn't cover it, but Mark tells us they've just come back from this mission ministry where Christ himself gave them his authority to go out and do what? Miracles. To heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cast out demons, and they come back to him rejoicing in what they've been able to do. And when this dilemma comes to them, they say, send these people away, they need food. You have to wonder if part of the send them away isn't, we're really tired, and these people are getting to be a little bit annoying at the end of the day. How about just, let's get them away and have that quiet time we were looking for. But you see, they've, they've had the authority of Jesus to do these kinds of miraculous things, but their hearts and their minds are still looking inwardly toward their own personal, limited faulty resources in being, being able to meet the needs of the people around them. Also, in terms of it being impossible, even if it's not them directly that supply this need, have they forgotten who it is they're with? Just as they did remember in that boat out on the, the Sea of Galilee sometime earlier when the terrible storm came up and they thought they were going to perish, they have to wake Jesus up, don't you care, we're dying? Oh, you of little faith. So Jesus tells them, bring the loaves and the fish here to me. He tells the crowd to sit down. That's the word that the ESV uses, although in, in the original that word most frequently means to recline. And, and again, that's not uncommon in this Middle Eastern culture. When you sat at a table, you often kind of sat on something that was more like a couch kind of a affair, reclining at the table. And certainly sitting on the ground uh, as many of us are inclined to do if you go on a picnic, you don't try to sit straight upright all the time. You sometimes lay on your side, prop yourself up, and, and eat that way. They're, they are likely reclining on the grass of this area in which they are. And that takes me back again to that passage in Ezekiel where God is going to bring them into rich green pastures and have them lie down so that he can feed them. 
And so we've looked at privacy and provision. Let's move on to provision. See, the disciples don't know where they're going to get so much food. They don't even think to ask the one that they know by now can do pretty much anything. They listen to Jesus. They bring him the food. But notice the very first thing that Jesus does when he takes the food from them, when they bring it to him. He looks where? Up to heaven. He looks up to heaven. Why? Well, we looked at Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2 this morning. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jesus doesn't just say, here, give me the food and watch me work. Jesus takes the food and lifts his eyes to heaven. You also have Psalm 145, 15. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. Jesus knows these psalms. He, in effect, wrote these psalms. He takes the bread and then we're told that he blessed it. Again, in that day, a Jewish father would sit at the head of the table and would pronounce a blessing on the food, something along the lines of, we thank you, O O Lord, our God, King of the earth, you who bring forth bread out of the earth. Jesus blesses the food, and then he broke the loaves, the bread, and then he gave that to his disciples, and they took it out and gave it to the people. How far did that little bit of food go? Well, Matthew tells us in terms of the crowd that they all ate. And that they, although he doesn't use all again, the implication is that they all not only ate, but they all were satisfied when they ate. Now, you all know the experience of being somewhere. Maybe you've had guests come to your home that you didn't expect and you only had a certain amount of food made, and maybe you uh, offer them the food, and you're really starving, but you tell them, oh, don't worry about me, I've already eaten, and you give them the food, and when they leave, there's nothing left for you to eat, and you have to find something else to make do. Not the case with these people in the crowd. They all ate, and they all were satisfied. Nobody was saying, hey, you got any more of that bread and fish over there? And in fact, Jesus sends the disciples around, and they collect 12 full baskets of leftovers from what was distributed to the people. How many were fed? Well, Matthew tells us that it was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Many, many try to say, well, it wasn't even women and children there, really. This was probably a group of men who had come. If you read another account, they want to make Jesus king, and it's more like a military force that's going to make him king and march on Jerusalem or something. Well, you already know that's not true because one of the accounts tells us that the reason they have a little bit of food is because there was a little boy there who had it. Right? And very few little boys are going anywhere into a remote area without their mother nearby to make sure they're okay. There are some who estimate that the crowd size could have been as much as 10 to 20,000 people who were fed that day. Now, what would this have made the people think of? Biblically, they could look back and they could think of Elisha the prophet in, in uh, Kings. In uh, 2 Kings, I think it's chapter 4, verses 42 to 45, he's got 100 men with him, and someone brings him some 
20 loaves of bread and some ears of grain, first fruits of his crop, and he brings it to him as the prophet, and Elisha tells him, feed the men with that. And the man looks at him and says, how am I going to feed a hundred men with this? And Elisha says to him, the Lord says they shall eat and have some left. Well, they all ate and they certainly had some left. And certainly that could have been in their mind. But in this sort of wilderness setting, most likely these people would have been reminded of Moses. And the giving of the bread in the wilderness, right? The manna that, that came to feed the people in the wilderness. And so their hearts and minds likely might have been going even in that direction at this point. And, and surely there's also significance to the fact that there were specifically 12 baskets of leftovers. Not 11, not 13, but 12. Again, the number 12 in Scripture points to the idea of fullness or completion in things there were how many tribes of israel 12 there were how many apostles there were 12 and how many baskets full there are 12 how many gates does the new jerusalem have when it comes down from god in heaven down to earth it has 12 as i understand it really this number 12 for the most part in scripture is used primarily to speak about the people of god in relationship to the people of god And so this particular remnant of 12 baskets, along with the massive number of people that were fed and still leaving that much left over, points to the abundance, the, the extravagance, if you will, of God's provision for these people through his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as Matthew has been pushing on us all throughout this gospel. So how do you apply the feeding of 5,000 people or more to us sitting here this morning? I could justly, fairly be accused of reading too much into the text here, perhaps, but I have to tell you that as I've read in and read through and prayed over this text this week, I've really been captivated by the fact that Matthew describes Jesus as withdrawing to this desolate place by himself when in fact he came with his disciples. Why does that stand out to me? Well, it has led me, at least throughout this week, to be contemplating even more deeply than I usually do the biblical principle of our unity, the reality of our unity with Jesus Christ. Again, Maybe I'm reading this into the text here. But Christ comes by himself, and when he does, he has his people with him. See, we're not Christ. But we are truly and spiritually united to him. Inseparable. Why? We were given to him by the Father, he says. The Father has given these people to me, and my mission, my charge from the Father, is that I should lose none of them. He tells us he's the vine and we're the branches. He's the, he's the head and we are the body. When you see Psalm 23 is written by and about him, we understand that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, what? He is with us. 
We and him, he and we. Paul even tells us in Colossians that there's a real sense in which when we suffer for Christ's sake, you have to be careful how you understand this, but there's a sense in which we fill up, we complete the sufferings of Christ. Now Paul didn't mean by that that Christ didn't suffer enough and that he needs me to suffer some more for him so that the atonement is really complete. That's not what he had in mind. We can't add anything to the merit of Christ. His sacrifice was once for all complete. That was our assurance, right, from Hebrews this morning. For by a single offering he perfected forever. What Paul means by that is that we are so truly united to Christ that his sufferings are ours. That's why we're saved, right? He suffered for us. That counts for us. And our sufferings are his. You remember Saul lying on the side of the road on his way to Damascus? What Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting those people over there? No, why are you persecuting me? You see, Jesus saw it as a personal attack upon himself that his people were being attacked. When Saul persecuted Christians, he was doing it to Christ. And and remember, before Jesus returned to heaven to his father, remember the promise he made to his disciples in that upper room? To all of us throughout all the ages? I am going to prepare a place for you, and if I do that, I am certainly going to come again and receive you to myself. Why? So that where I am, you may be also. You see that? Christ and us. And that should be a source of great comfort and rejoicing for us as we think about this, that when Christ goes off by himself, he doesn't go away from us. We're with him always. And that's what he promised. That's what he left. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Now also, because we're his and because we're called to be like him, I think this passage also calls us to growth in grace. Again, I think that his disciples were likely tired and felt that they'd actually done enough for this people already by the time evening got here. Send them away to fend for themselves, Lord. Um, We need a break. And Jesus, at that point, called on them to learn mercy and compassion. Remember his reaction to the people when he saw them? Well, I was hoping for a lonely, desolate place, but look what I got instead. His heart was moved with compassion, and he wants his disciples' hearts to be moved with compassion for the people that they are ministering to as well and living among. You give them something to eat, he said. Now, we also should learn from their example. We, too, have to be careful not to limit ourselves too much in terms of what we will give to others or do for others. Sometimes when we face a situation and feel like we are just done in and we need to just get away, somebody comes along and says, help. Do we find our hearts moved with compassion for people as Christ? Are we willing to set aside our personal needs for the benefit of others as our Savior did. I think, I think we're called to do that. We need to be led, as Jesus led his disciples here by example, also to not just consider our own limited, faulty human resources when we're trying to help people, or even to work on the things we need for ourselves. 
We need to learn to do what Jesus himself, the Son of God, did, right? Lift his eyes to heaven and ask God for the resources for what is needed. God, the one who is able to do far more abundantly above all that we ask or think, right? That's that benediction we use from Ephesians. But remember, it's according to the power that is at work where? In us. God often wants us to be the hands and feet for the power that is being used here in this world for the benefit of his people and others. It's also interesting, I think, Matthew doesn't tell us this time anything about the crowd's immediate reaction to this miracle. He doesn't tell us they were amazed. We, we read in one of the other Gospels that they were so impressed by it that they decided to make Jesus king and he had to sort of escape from them again. John will tell us in chapter 6 of his gospel, which I put some of that in your bulletin for you to see, that when they got back to Capernaum, this same crowd looked for Jesus and found him again, and he had to rebuke them. We may talk about that in just a minute. The point is, Matthew doesn't tell us anything about that. He's content to let the miracle speak for itself. Now, yes, it is true that the people would have been reminded of Moses giving their fathers bread in the wilderness. But the point here is that Jesus is much more than Moses. He's not just Moses reduplicated. Matthew's been at pains to show us that Jesus is far more than Moses ever was, which the people kept looking back to. Remember, when the first people first saw the manna lying on the ground and said, what is this? Moses didn't say, this is the bread I got for you, be happy with it. Moses said, this is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The Lord. Well, Jesus has given them the bread in the wilderness. What does that make him? The Lord has given you this bread to eat. You see, Jesus is the one people could have understood through this passage that Abraham rejoiced in when on that mountain he was spared from having to sacrifice his only beloved son Isaac as God had called him to do because a substitute, a ram, was graciously provided for him so that he didn't have to kill his son. And who was it provided by? Abraham calls God in that moment Jehovah Jireh. The God who provides. And certainly God has provided for these people abundantly in and through Jesus Christ in this situation. Again, far more abundantly than we might ask or think. Now that's perhaps the most that these people might have been led to think about at this moment in this situation. But we have more scripture available to us. We have other Gospels that tell us additional information around this incident that show us how Christ himself intended this miracle to show them and us even more. Jesus isn't just, said carefully, isn't just the Lord from heaven who gives bread to his people. In John chapter 6, Jesus encounters these very same people back in Capernaum. They come looking for him again. And Jesus this time rebukes them. You're only looking, you're not looking at me, looking for me because of the signs. 
Notice the word signs. Signs do what? They point to a reality. They point to something. You're not coming to me because my miraculous works are signs that identify me as the Messiah and you should repenting, be repenting and following me. You're coming to me because you want your bellies filled again with bread. And he urges them to seek not earthly bread, which leaves you hungry again, but to look for the bread from heaven that leads to eternal life, which will be given to you by the Son of Man, what he's been calling himself throughout. You see, they don't see this miracle as a sign of his true identity. They just want to be fed. He said to them in that passage, I am the true bread from heaven and from God, who, not us, not us, not what, the true bread who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. See, though these people in that moment couldn't have gotten it through this miracle and through Jesus' application of this miracle in John 6, he's actually using this feeding of the 5,000 to point to his atoning death and to the sacrament that he would initiate in those last hours before he was arrested and taken away, the Lord's Supper, as we call it. A means of grace through which he intends his people to be spiritually fed and nourished by faith in him through his spirit. I am the living bread that came down from heaven, he says. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world, Jesus said to them in John 6, is my flesh. Now they began to wonder if he's talking about cannibalism at that point. He says to them again, though, he doesn't back away. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Now again, those people at that moment, as Jesus is speaking, can have no concept that he's pointing to something like this sacrament that he's going to institute. It's not been started. They have no connection to that. But Jesus does. And surely we can see that as he sits before his disciples on that night, remember what he does. He first takes the bread which is what he did in this miracle, right? Takes the bread, and then he blessed it, gave thanks for it, which is what he did in this miracle, and then he broke it, which he did in this miracle, and then he gave it to his disciples, as he did in this miracle. Do you think it's a coincidence that those same words and order carry through from one to the other? That night he said to his disciples, holding that Bread, this is my body, which is for you, which is given for you. I'm the bread from heaven. If you feed on me, eternal life. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of their sins. It's why we should see that sacrament, which we just took part in last week, every time as a renewal of Christ's love for us and our love for him and our love for one another. It is through that that we are by faith, through his spirit, 
nourished and strengthened for a faithful life and walk with him. The bread in the wilderness, Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace to us in Christ. Thank you for the life that he lived. Thank you for the teachings that he gave. Thank you more than that for who he was and for the mission that he came to do and so fully and perfectly accomplished. Thank you for the faithful record you preserved of it so that we can read the very words of God and by your spirit have them applied savingly to our hearts and lives so that we can eat of the bread and drink of his blood by faith through the spirit and be nourished and strengthened to eternal life. We pray that you would make that very true for us, not just today, but in the days and weeks and months and years ahead of us as we journey through this desolate place. Help us to look to heaven for your provision in and through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.